In the 1960s, there was a group of students, Jewish students, who went into an audience with the Rebbe. It was a practice that seemed to be going for a couple of years. I'm not sure who arranged it, but different um, college students from different campuses. It was actually arranged by Hillel at the time, because this is before Chabad houses were uh, a thing. And they would go to meet different Jewish leaders, and among them was the Rebbe, and it was no holds barred. You could ask whatever question you want. You didn't even have to prepare in advance. Like, you just came in and you can shoot your question and the Rebbe would answer. We have transcripts of these audiences, even recordings in some cases, fascinating stuff. Um, you can check Chabad.org, I encourage you. You can, you can read some of these transcripts actually yourself. Wonderful, wonderful exchanges. And you can see the Rebbe's wisdom. And you know they always say the best way to answer is not to answer the question, but to answer the person. Super important when someone's challenging you. You want to answer the person, not the question. And you see how the Rebbe does that with, with great, great wisdom. Anyway, at one point, there was some student that um, decided to be a little, let's call it point blank, with the Rebbe. And he says, I hear that the Rebbe doesn't just offer advice on Torah matters. He gives advice also on physical matters. Tells people which medicine to take, whether to have an operation. He counsels people how to go about court cases. And I don't understand. Does the Rebbe profess to know medicine better than doctors and law better than lawyers? <coughs> so the Rebbe smiled. And the Rebbe said, you know, in construction, every time a house goes up, you have many people that are involved in shaping it. People are in charge of building the frame, there's the plumbers, there's the electricians, and then there's the contractor who oversees everything. And if you watch, it's the contractor who gives instructions. He tells the plumber where to put the plumbing, he tells the electrician where to put the wiring, he tells the people that are building the frame how to build the frame. So what's the story? The contractor knows plumbing better than the plumbers? He knows electricity better than electricians? No. But he's the one who knows how to read the blueprints. And when you know how to read the blueprints, you can give guidance to everybody how to do their job in the most efficient way. So the Rebbe said the Midrash teaches that the Torah is the blueprint of the world. That's literally the words of the opening Midrash, Midrash Rabbah. It says, God, like an architect, pulled out a blueprint and drew a plan for the world, and that was the Torah. So the Rebbe said, when one knows how to read the blueprint, one can give instructions to all the different people how to do their jobs. And the implication, of course, is much wider than the story. The story is a beautiful story, beautiful message, tells you the power of a tzaddik, a righteous man who is truly in tune with... Uh, with the inner layer of creation. <coughs> but the ramifications are much bigger as they relate to Torah itself. The way Kabbalah words it is that Torah is inherently or primarily godly. It's only secondly of this world. It's first and foremost a literal expression of God's infinity. 
Of secondary importance is the fact that it's also an academic collection of literature able to be studied and analyzed, commentated on and worked, you know, and, and, and produced upon, improved upon. Before everything, the Torah is simply godly essence. Interesting, we just started reading the Torah a couple of weeks ago. That's one of the reasons that the Torah begins with a bet. Everybody wonders, how come the Torah doesn't begin with an Aleph? It's the first letter of the alphabet. The, the Ten Commandments, by the way, begin with an Aleph. Anochi Hashem Elokecha. How come the t- entire Torah doesn't begin with an Aleph? It would be very appropriate, you know? And many answers have been offered. The Rebbe once said that, mystically, it's because the Torah that we have is Bet. It's number two. The primary Torah is, at, is as it exists in the higher realms. The Torah that we have, that we study, as it filtered down into this world, is only Torah number two. In other words, 2.0, a lower version. But that's how it is. <coughs> By the way, not only is it true of the Torah relative to itself, it's true of the Torah relative to the world. We believe that every single phenomena in this world is a manifestation of the way that phenomenon exists in the Torah. In the words of the Zohar, Istakel be'oraita ubara alma. God looked into the Torah and created the world. Because everything, not just every part of Torah, everything first existed in the context of the Torah and only then took shape in its physical, worldly sense. Of course, if we accept that premise, we have to address a major question. How do we explain evil? Negativity. If every single thing in the world can be traced back and has its source in the Torah, what do we do with all the bad? How do we explain all the bad? So it's not the the main topic of the note we're studying tonight, but just in short, the answer has to be that the evolution itself is what created the imprecision or the imperfection. The very fact that Torah took a journey from being at one with God to create a world necessitated or by virtue of the step down itself, inexactitude was created. And of course the purpose is for us to correct it, as is everything imperfect in this world. It's here for a reason. God made an imperfect world so that we could perfect it. And in the case of the Torah, when we do, when we reveal even those mundane things, those seemingly external things, when we reveal how they also are connected to the Torah, we shine a light, not just on the world, but we shine a light on the truth of Torah because we reveal the link between yet another part of reality and the Torah and Hashem. Of course, it's a longer discussion, but this becomes the groundwork for the discussion we're going to have tonight, (coughs) note number five, in book number five of the Tanya. Of course, as I've said the last couple of weeks, this last book is a very different style than the previous four books in that they're written for the Alter Rebbe himself. They weren't written to be published. These are the Alter Rebbe's handwritten you know, jottings as he researched the Kabbalistic material that formed the basis for book one of the Tanya. 
as he came across certain contradictions and issues in the Zohar, he wrote down his resolutions for them. So when we study them, it's all with the big disclaimer of this is the best that I understood it as far as I can tell. Note 5 is clearly an addendum to Note 4, which we studied last week. In fact, in all other places that it's published, like in other books of the Alter Rebbe's Discourses, they come together, Note 4 and Note 5. And in last week's note, which is arguably the most difficult part of the Tanya, hands down, it's the longest, definitely, and we, uh, for better or for worse, we just learned kind of a summary, a distilled version last week. We did not delve in to all the depth of it. It's just way beyond the scope of the classes. But the overarching theme of, the, of Note 4 was putting major attention or major focus on the greatness of mitzvahs over any other spiritual pursuit. Mitzvahs versus Torah study, mitzvahs versus prayer, mitzvahs versus personal meditation. Why mitzvahs are the greatest of them all? And in short, <coughs> and I'm only going to focus on Torah study because that's, that's the main subject tonight. In short, the Alter Rebbe argued that the reason why mitzvahs are greater than Torah study is because mitzvahs are where we actually satisfy God's will. God's will is to shake the lulav. God's will is to eat the matzah. That's the will of God, the physical act. And it's in the act of the mitzvah that we do so. Torah, that we study, is simply a facilitator. It teaches us the laws. It gives us guidance how to live a more spiritually oriented life. But in the end, it's when we do the deed that we're actually doing what Hashem wants. He also talked more mystically. Mitzvahs are where we actually go through the, the process of clarifying the entanglement of this world. Things are very enmeshed in this world. It's all mixed up. Good is mixed up with bad. Positive energy and negative energy, all over the, they're all over the place. And the mitzvahs kind of separate the two. It's a, it's, a, it's a sorting process. Whereas Torah is just, again, showing the way. Or if you want to use more, uh, maybe new age terminology, Torah is a safe space. Okay, Torah is a spiritual safe space. If you study Torah, you surround yourself in the four walls of Torah, you're not going to have to encounter anything dangerous. Mitzvahs are the danger zone. Mitzvahs are where you go out to the physical world, you're encountering things that are inherently ungodly and you're trying to transform them into something godly. That's, you're stepping out of the zone. And that's why the achievement is so much greater when you successfully pull something out of the confusion of this world and into the clarity of godliness. But the Alter Rebbe said last week, and I didn't, to be fair, I, I did not put enough stress on it because I was trying to cover all the material, but for tonight's conversation, it's very relevant. The Alter Rebbe says that this greatness of mitzvahs over Torah study is only when we refer to Torah study for its own sake, not to be a means to fulfilling mitzvahs properly. Torah study that's geared with the intention of fulfilling mitzvahs, for example, you're studying the halachas, you're studying the Jewish law governing a certain mitzvah. So now, you know, we're in a couple of weeks, it's going to be Hanukkah, so you would spend some time um, studying the laws of Hanukkah. Or even if you study the mysticism of a mitzvah, put on tefillin every day, and you take some time to study what mystically is being accomplished when you put on tefillin. Torah study that's directly related to mitzvahs actually has the power of mitzvahs themselves. In a way, when we learn Torah, it's even considered as though we are doing the mitzvah. 
The Talmud says that when, uh, when a person studies about sacrifices, especially today, we don't have the temple, when we study about sacrifices, it's like bringing sacrifices. That's actually part of the reason why so much of our preparations for the morning prayers are going through the passages about the daily sacrifices. It's because of that. It's because we want to achieve that sacrificial process. What about like yeshiva? Like, which <laughs> through, like... Wow. How did you know? It's like you read my mind. <laughs> that is tonight's topic. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious, by the way. Before we get there. <laughs> studying Torah is as powerful as mitzvahs, whether you're studying about positive mitzvahs or about negative mitzvahs. Because you would think, you know, it's easy to say when you study about shaking a lulav, it's like actually shaking a lulav, because that's a deed. That's a do. But what about when you're studying about a don't? What about if you study the laws of not working on Shabbos. Prohibitions. Prohibitions. Which, by, by their very nature, are inactive. Or they're, they're, they're passive behaviors. So, so how would that work? It's like, I studied Torah about a deed. Okay, I get it. The study is like the deed. But what is the study like the not deed? Like, how, how does that work? It's an active choice. Huh? It's an active choice. Very good. The Alter Rebbe refers us to the statement in the Talmud, which says, Yashav velo avar avera, Somebody who sits and does not transgress a prohibition gets rewarded as though he fulfilled a positive commandment because in the moment he has to make a choice. In the moment he has to confront his temptation and confront his lust and decide, I'm not going to cross the red line. You also educate yourself and you might learn new information which will stop you from doing certain deeds. So, we can understand how even studying about prohibitions or passive parts of Judaism also effectuate the same thing that the mitzvah itself would do. The question, though, that we have to ask ourselves, and that's the topic of tonight's note, is what about the huge part of Jewish law that's impractical? Huge. An immense part of halacha is impractical. And like Evan said, that's what we do in yeshiva. A majority of the time of my 10 years that I spent in the four walls of the yeshiva, we spent studying about things that will never happen, I guarantee. And we analyzed, and we delved, and we learned perspectives, and how does Rambam understand it, how does Rashi understand it, and we're arguing over the nuances of an extra word in the Talmud, getting into their heads, what were they thinking, how did they approach it, what's the angle? Practically, we all know what we're doing. We all know what we're not doing. It has no bearing. <coughs> oh, as far as I can tell, the Alter Rebbe gives in this note three types of impractical laws. One type of impractical law is laws that are clearly addressed in the Torah, but they're super uncommon. An example for this he gives is the laws of Pigul. Pigul literally means disgusting, but it's a reference to bringing a sacrifice with the wrong intention. It's one of the only areas of Torah where intention actually matters. You bring a sacrifice to the temple, and the Kohen has the wrong thought. While slaughtering your sacrifice or while sprinkling its blood, the whole sacrifice is invalidated. You spend a thousand dollars buying a cow, and he comes back to you because he doesn't like you. You know, for yesterday he says, hey, you know, I had the wrong thought. And that's it. You've got to buy a new cow. The whole thing is out. And it gets super complex. What did he think? When did he think? How long did the thought process? What, was, what exactly were the details of the thought? 
chapters and chapters in the Rambam, pages and pages in the Talmud. So this is, it's a clear law. If the Kohen wanted to, he can do it, but it's very, very uncommon. That's one type of impractical Torah. A second type of impractical Torah would be a situation which cannot be created willfully. It could only be created by mistake. There's a lot of laws in the Torah about mistakes. The example Alter Rebbe chooses is uh, what's called Ma'aser Behema. It's a very interesting law. Once a year, every farmer uh, had to gather all the newborn animals that were born that year, put them in a pen, and let them out one by one, and he had to verbally count them. One, two, three, till he got to number 10. At number 10, he would take some red paint, smear it on the animal, and that animal became holy, and it was brought as a sacrifice. So that every 10 animals, you were bringing one-tenth of your livestock as a sacrifice to Hashem. It was brought to the temple, and you would eat it with your friends. It was the whole thing. Ma'aser behema. So believe it or not, again, chapters in Halacha, pages in the Talmud, dealing with what happens if you make a mistake in your count. It's absent-minded, you know, one, two, three, and then instead of saying nine, you say ten. And then you catch yourself, so you call the tenth one nine. But then you're thinking nine, and the eleventh one you call it ten. So now you're all confused. <coughs> many, many intricate cases about this, and laws. So there you have the, the whole, the whole um, body of Torah law on the topic can only be generated if someone makes an error. It's not really possible to say this is a law of Torah that exists inherently. It only comes into being when you create the situation. Let's say Pigel, right, the, to, to contrast. The, the, the improper thoughts, the Kohen can go in and decide to have it. He, that's, he can do that purposely. But the laws of 9 and 10, that's only if it happens by mistake. It wouldn't apply if you purposely said the number is the wrong numbers. You have to do it by mistake to generate the cases. That's another type of impracticality. Then you have another third type of impractical Torah, which we'll call hypothetical questions. When we know the law, and the sages are just want to twiddle their thumbs a little bit, and they want to know what happens in this case, what happens in that case. The Alter Rebbe references a famous uh, page of Talmud, which is called The Questions of Rabbi Yirmiyah. Rabbi Yirmiyah was notorious. He was famous for being a nudge in, uh, in the study hall. He would ask these questions that just seemed ridiculous. Like there's a law that um, if a bird is, is young, too young to fly, but it walks out of its nest, like a little place, you know, the, the birdhouse, so within 50 amos, within 50 cubits from the, from the nest, it belongs to the owner of the nest. If it passes 50 cubits, then it belongs to whoever finds it. So Rabbi Yirmiyah got up in the study hall. He says, what happens if one foot is inside the 50 and one foot is outside the 50? Offsides. <laughs> now what do we do? You know, Talmud says they kicked him out of the study hall. They said, for that question, you're just being a headache. <coughs> and all types of these questions. He asked many such similar scenarios. There's a whole, uh, the Alter Rebbe gives examples, I'll just say it. There's a whole set of laws about uh, firstborn. The firstborn animal of a kosher animal and also of a donkey, specifically that, is 
considered holy. And the wording in the Torah is peter rechem. It has to open the womb. It has to be the first one to go through the birth canal to be considered um, a firstborn. So the Talmud spends a whole page dealing with different scenarios where you would interrupt, you would put an interposition between the animal and the canal. So what happens if you stuck a little piece of paper, you know, as the animal was coming out, and as it passed through the canal, it didn't touch the walls of the canal. Or the woman who would typically help aid the animal to give birth, what if the woman would, would envelope, surround the, 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 uh, the animal with her hands, not letting it touch the canal? Is that called opening the womb or not? This way, that way. Hypotheticals. What is the point of learning these, these ideas in Torah? What, what's, what's the value that they serve? If I learn about a mitzvah, good. I, I get credit like doing a mitzvah. It, it's directly linked there. You, you could even say Kabbalistically, you're accomplishing the same type of you know, uh, uh, clarity, loosening the entanglement, separating the good parts from their attachment to the negative forces. But if you're simply learning about stuff that can never, will never happen, have never happened, don't make any sense, they're just hypotheticals, what do you do with that? So the legal answer, by the way, the Talmud asks this question about other things. The Talmud, the Talmud uh, there's a piece of Talmud that says, um, you know, there's two, there's two kosher signs for a fish. Fins and scales, right? That's what makes a fish kosher. So the Talmud says, you should know a rule. Just because a fish has fins doesn't mean it has scales. But if a fish has scales, it certainly has fins. So the Talmud asks, okay, so then why does the Torah have to say that the signs for a kosher fish are fins and scales? So just say scales. Because as long as you have scales, then you're good. You don't need fins. Every extra word in the Torah, you know, it's nothing, everything is precise. So the Talmud says, Drosh v'kabel schar. Hashem puts in extra words in the Torah in this case so that the Jews could expound and have fun and analyze and get more reward for studying the Torah. That, that is the legal answer, or it's also called Yagdil Torah Adir, just to make the Torah great and beautiful. Sometimes we have cases just to show you how pure the Torah's logic is that it can be applied into hypotheticals and hypotheticals upon hypotheticals and all of that. But in this note, the Altar Rebbe wants to offer a mystical answer. What's the mystical value? What's the esoteric value in studying Torah that simply cannot be applied? And the Altar Rebbe says, an idea based on the introduction that I gave. Every single thing in this world has a source in the Torah. Not just every single thing, but every single phenomenon, every single energy. Every single energy in this world has a precursor somewhere in the Torah. Which means that every hypothesis in Torah, every suggestion in the Torah, is a source for an energy that's present in creation. So when the halacha has practical implications, that means there is some type of practical entanglement within the reality of, of the world as we know it. It has to be corrected. And when we study and then do the mitzvah that, that comes from that, we, we undo that entanglement. But when the Torah that we study seems to be uncommon, the message is, that while there may not be any manifestation of it physically, there's an energy present in this world or perhaps in a higher spiritual world 
where that type of entanglement represented by the question exists. And every time, believe it or not, every time Rabbi Yirmiyah's hypothetical question was answered in the study hall, a clarity was taking place somewhere in the cosmos. By resolving the Torah question, because everything in Torah is directly linked to something somewhere, that something somewhere was released. A good energy was separated from a negative energy. By the way, even with mistakes, the Alter Rebbe says, you know, it's a little hard to say that about mistakes. Because you could say that every, every um, negative energy which came into practicality has a precursor in the Torah. But a mistake, by definition, means somebody made a mistake. How could you pre-program a mistake? In other words, where, where, where is the energy for, for mistakes? So Alter Rebbe has a, <coughs> a little parenthesis. It's actually quite rare. In the Tanya, we have a note from his grandson. At Tzadach Tzadik inserted a note on his grandfather's writings, and he says, it seems like my grandfather was unsure about the final answer to the question of where mistakes come from, but we know from the Arizal that even when a Jew makes a mistake, it's because he has desensitized himself from his truest, pristine connection to God. In other words, in a way, the mistake is the byproduct of a series of purposeful misalignments from your own deepest potential. While in the moment you may have eaten, you know, you may have gone into a shop and picked up something non-kosher and snacked on it by mistake, you didn't mean to, but it's because you've conditioned yourself to be less and less sensitive to that which is holy. Over time, you've made some other choices purposely that allowed your soul to be covered and a little less sensitive it's like a smoke detector, you know, when, when they come in from the factory, they're very, very sensitive to everything. A shower can, can set them off. But then if you cover it a little bit and you, you mistreat it a little bit, ultimately it's not going to pick up everything. So in the same way, mistakes don't exist in a vacuum, is what the Arizal teaches. Mistake exists in a, in a context. And the context is a series of negative choices which then leads to a mistake. So in that way, they're also rooted in some negative source. And when we resolve the mistake, we resolve that entanglement in the source. When you're talking about mistakes, you mean inadvertent sins? Or... Um, when I talk about mistakes, I mean inadvertent sins, but I also mean inadvertent acts that mess up the ideal way. Like calling the ninth, tenth, is not a, it's not an inadvertent sin, but it's a mistake. It, like, you know, if, 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 if you were a tzaddik, you would never, it would never happen. You know, you'd just be on the straight, straight and narrow. The fact that you messed it up and I have to go to the rabbi to ask him what the law is itself tells you that there's something there's some impurity, there's impurity some in the soul. <coughs> exactly. Past actions of what else? Yeah. By the way, the Alter Rebbe says, this is why, not so related to the main topic at hand, but this is why the Arizal writes that every soul, every individual soul of the Jewish people must learn the entirety of the Torah on all its levels, from simplistic to esoteric, and do every mitzvah. And souls will be reincarnated till they do it all. What's, what's, what's the significance of that? The significance of it is that because of this link between Torah and creation, mitzvahs and creation, our personal mission 
to fulfill in this world is directly linked to our personal Torah study and to our personal mitzvah deeds because that's how we redeem those parts of the world that we have to redeem. So therefore, it follows that every individual soul has to go through the entire journey of the entire Torah and mitzvahs because that's how we fully fulfill our, our, our divine potential. By the way, there's some question exactly about that because you know, not everybody can be a king. You know, there are some mitzvahs that only a king can do. How many king incarnates can you have? So Alter Rebbe says that there are some mitzvahs that great souls get to do on behalf of everybody. King mitzvahs, high priest mitzvahs, but the regular mitzvahs and the regular Torah, we all got to go till we, till we finish it all. So if you want to help your soul, just become a rabbi. It's just, it's just worth it. That's what I'm saying. You, you just learn, learn more Torah. But that's the bottom line. The Alter Rebbe's main contribution here is that everything, not just things that we can touch and are tangible, but even the energies are waiting for some part of Torah to redeem them, and sometimes it looks like that kind of a Torah that's beyond being common or being practical. Now, the plot thickens a little bit because there's a super important point made by the Zohar. The Zohar says, Clarity takes place in Chachma. Chachma is one of the divine supernal attributes, but it literally means wisdom, which if I could translate it just in simple English, I would say it takes wisdom to create true clarity. And the supposition here is that if you engage in untying a tangled knot, you are at risk of becoming tangled yourself. When you, tr when you invest in solving a problem, you can sometimes become part of the problem. And therefore, if you are going to say that as a Jew I'm going to study Torah and use the Torah to release, untie, undo some spiritual knots that need undoing, well, you might, get, you might become part of the confusion. So how do you make sure that your Torah study is really accomplishing clarity? So the Zohar says it has to be accompanied by true wisdom. In other words, you have to make sure that when you're studying, you're, collect, you're connected to the light of the Torah, the truth of the Torah, the God in the Torah. The second you divorce God from your Torah study is the second you become part of the issue because you will just entangle things further. The more Hashem is present as the guiding light in your Torah study, the more your Torah will have the power of doing what it has to do. There's a very enig enigmatic piece of Talmud that says, you know why Jerusalem was destroyed? Why was Jerusalem destroyed? Because people didn't make a blessing on the Torah before they studied. Why was Jerusalem destroyed? Because they didn't make a blessing on the Torah before they studied. What? So what? They, st they still study Torah. What's wrong with not making a blessing? Okay, you're supposed to make a blessing, it's true, but you don't make a blessing that Jerusalem should be destroyed. Isn't like stealing the Torah in a way? Huh? Is like stealing the Torah? Like, don't they say that if you eat food without blessing it, it's like you stole it in Rosh Interesting. Yeah. Chassidus makes a very similar point. What, what is the blessing on the Torah? We all say it every time we get called up to the Torah. Hashem chose us from the nations. He gave us His Torah. Blessed are you, God, who gave us the Torah. In other words, 
the, the blessing upon the Torah is the declaration and the reminder that I'm not studying some piece of academia. I'm studying something godly. Hashem is the giver of the Torah. By the way, we say notain. Notain means in the present. He is giving me the Torah right now that I am studying. God is coming down as though He was revealing Himself on Mount Sinai and I'm having a Sinai experience right now as I study. It definitely can. It's super easy. You know the joke? I'm say, say it happened, but I hope it didn't happen. There was a, a chassid and a not chassid, the misnagid, who got together one day, and the misnagid, who was a great Torah giant, he said, I need your help. I have a big issue. So the chassid's friend says, what happened? He says, I had a dream that God died. It's terrible. I, I don't know. I had a dream that Hashem died. So the chassid said, wow, you know, it says in the Talmud that the things we think about by day are what we dream about by night. So tell me, what, what's, what's been bringing about these thoughts about God dying? He says, no, that's exactly the problem. I haven't thought about God in 40 years. Pashtest. <laughs> <coughs> At the Fabringens, the Hasidim used to bring it out to say that sometimes you can, you can get carried away with the intellectual stimulation and the, the, how, how much Torah is engaging. And it is super engaging. Study a page of Talmud and you will have fun. And it's easy to get carried away. And if you're not centered on the fact that it's God's Torah, you can lose track. And that's what the Talmud is saying. Jerusalem was destroyed the second the Jews divorced, took God out of the picture. When they stopped making that blessing, when God was out of the picture, yeah, then God goes out of the picture. Here, the Alter Rebbe gives a little bit of a more Kabbalistic twist. He says, the word bracha means drawing down. When you make a blessing on the Torah, not only are you bringing Hashem into your own perspective, you're bringing God into the Torah. Baruchu Torah. Ba means in. You're making a blessing. You're bringing something down into the Torah. You're, in, you're infusing your Torah with a godliness that allows it to accomplish what it has to accomplish. And that's the story of how to do the true disentanglement with your Torah study. The Alter concludes with one final point. So what happens when Mashiach comes? When Mashiach comes, there is no confusion. All negative forces are gone. What's Torah study then? If the whole Torah and mitzvahs is about lighting up a dark world, releasing sparks from their jail, what happens when Mashiach comes? And we are going to be studying Torah when Mashiach comes, by the way. Don't, no, no doubt about that. The Rambam's concluding halacha in his entire work. It says that's all we're going to be doing when Mashiach comes. Mashiach is Torah study. But what is the purpose of Torah study? So the Alter Rebbe says, as a matter of fact, when Mashiach comes, the Torah study is no longer going to be about turning on lights in dark rooms. It's going to be about bringing more light to our already clear world. In other words, a journey within goodness, or as they say, from good to better. Elevating our neshama to no end. Because with God, like we said before, there are no ends. And then in a half a line, the Alter Rebbe sneaks in a very profound thought. And I'm going to close with this. What is going to be the purpose of studying about prohibitions when Mashiach comes?
studying about positive mitzvahs, I can understand. It just brings more light. The more you study, the more light. But the whole idea of prohibitions, right, of staying away from certain things, why, why do we stay away from not kosher? What's, what's, what's the mystical reason that we don't engage with certain parts of the world? Because some bad can be redeemed. Some bad just has to be suffocated and left to die. When you don't engage with negative things, the super negative things, they don't have any energy to hold on to and therefore they die. That's our mission in this world, to, stay, to, to, to redeem that which can be redeemed and to stay away from that which has to just be killed. But when Mashiach comes, nothing is evil, nothing has to be killed. So what purpose does our studying about not doing, what form does that take? So the truth is that, of course, negating evil isn't the, the end all of the prohibitions in the Torah. They're all, every mitzvah is called a mitzvah. Mitzvah means connection. There's an active connection happening. Um, Kabbalistically, every mitzvah that we do and every mitzvah that we don't do is, is releasing energies. So what is, what is the answer? It's fascinating. Alter Rebbe, again, in, in four words, says this, I'm just communicating to you what I understand it to mean based on other discourses and chassidus where this concept is very, very well expounded. It says, you know, in life, there are certain things that we can relate to, certain ideas we can comprehend, certain things we can grasp. And then there are certain things that are just too big for us. They're just beyond us. And the only way we can have them or bring them into our lives is by not trying and letting it come in by itself. You make yourself a vessel for it, and then it comes in. I don't know if you've ever been through this, but it, 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 it happens. People experience it at least once. I mean, I hope you get to experience it once, where you're bothered by something tremendous. is a huge dilemma weighing on your mind, and try as you might to solve it, you cannot solve it actively. And then you just go to sleep, and in the vacuum, the answer comes to you the next day by itself. The unconscious. There's something very, very profound about that. And, it's, and, and Kabbalistically, the idea is you're accessing something which your mind could not proactively grasp. It was impossible. It was beyond comprehension. But because you opened yourself up to that energy, you became a channel or a vehicle, it came in. The same is true with God, says Chassidus. There are certain energies that we can manufacture, certain godly responses that we can create. We can bring them down into our world. That's how we, that, we do that by doing mitzvahs. But then there are certain elements of godly energy which we cannot bring down. We cannot create. The only thing we can do is not do. And in the not trying, we become a vessel for even those greater things to come. And it's like Shabbos. You know, even today we have a little example of that. Shabbos, how do we bring in Shabbos into our lives? By not doing work. There's, Shabbos is so holy and so sublime, there's nothing we could do to bring Shabbos in. We have to not do. And from the state of rest comes the Shabbos. And the same will be when Mashiach comes. Through the not-doings, through the study of the prohibitions of the passive parts of Judaism, that will be our way of opening ourselves up to things that we could never hope to reach proactively, but simply become a receptacle, and Hashem brings it in. L'chaim.